Our world has never been 100% just. Justice has, has always been somewhat of a thing that we're reaching for, never actually completely attained as a human race. There's always been injustice, as long as there's been humans around. Right now, we are living in a time where that is on display in more stark relief than before. Unjust events that have happened in America have, have resonated globally. The atrocities of systematic racism and of racism made more personal in our own lives, they're getting a new look. They're getting a bit of a fresh look. I hope that we would be less infatuated with how the world is through all this. I hope we'll be less infatuated, infatuated with how good that we think that we are through all of this. I hope that the disenchantment that we have in our world would lead to real change, not just in America, but worldwide and policies and systems within ourselves. I also hope that we won't miss this opportunity to learn more about God's heart, that we clearly, as humans, do not have what it takes to create a just society. We just don't. There are enemies outside that are easy to point the finger at, and there are enemies inside that hurts a little bit more when we point that finger at ourselves. We need help. We need relief. And the thing is, it seems like there's just so many options out there. Like, where, are we, where do we go from here? Like, what's the next step? Where do we go? How do we know what the next step might be? Not just in government policies or policing, which are obviously very important decisions, but also in our own lives. Like, where do we go when we're disenchanted with ourselves? As we've been waiting around during this COVID era, we've been disturbed by the world. And in this story that we have in Acts 17, we'll see that only Jesus gives us the hope that we need when we're disturbed, when our lives are disrupted. And the future hope of Jesus is one that is at work now and present in our lives. That future hope gets to be at work presently in our lives. And we find uh, in the beginning of our story, it's much like us in, in kind of lockdown. Paul has been dropped off in Athens. He's kind of fleed a place that been trying to kill him. And so he's in Athens waiting around for other people to pick him up. And while he's waiting around, he's greatly distressed. It says that he's provoked in verse 16. He was, uh, while he was waiting for them, he was greatly distressed. He didn't just feel bad. He was provoked to do something, uh, to say something. Uh, this is the first point. There is a disruption. Paul is disturbed by idolatry. That's what it says. But what, what really disturbed him about this idolatry? What was, what, why is that a problem? Was it wanting, to people, wanting people to be on his side, to kind of uh, um, check the box that, that he was all on? Um, was he wanting people to be on the same page with his beliefs? But what the story tells us is that there are many options to worship many things. And it seems like Athens is quite a tolerant kind of atmosphere. There's a lot of things going on. And people are devoted to what they worship. But even in this city, with lots of worship going on, these people are missing out. These people in Athens are missing out. They're looking for something and haven't found it yet. They're reaching for something and can't seem to grab it. Paul says, you all are worth so much. You are the offspring of God. You have a dignity within yourself. You're, you're, you should be worshiping things that are better than what you've created with your hands. And Paul does not want people to miss out on God. He, he, Paul is saying, God is the one who gives life that you're searching for. God is the one who gives a meaning to our lives that you're searching for. Now, this should remind us of Jesus. When he was overlooking Jerusalem, he, a very religious place. People are devoutly doing all the things that are, that are, are called of them. 
And what Jesus sees is people who are lost. It makes him sad. He, he grows in compassion. He sees people who, well-meaning people, well-meaning religious people who are lost, as it says, as sheep without a shepherd. See, the more we are aligned with Jesus, the more his heart becomes ours. The more time we spend with him, the more our hearts are formed by him. And the more we'll be like Paul and see people who maybe on the outside look okay, look com completely okay, but they're also completely lost and they're missing out on God. Because if God is the one who gives life, it doesn't matter how much money anyone has. It doesn't matter how comfortable they are, how many friends they have, how easy or difficult a life might be. If you have God, you have life. If you don't have God, you're missing out on that life. And Athens here teaches us that there can be all sorts of things we can spend our time chasing after. We can spend all sorts of time chasing after all sorts of things, thinking it's the right thing. And Athens, maybe more than any city we've come across in, in Acts so far, is like how I experienced Charlton. Uh, we are surrounded here in Charlton by idols as well. People come to Charlton, or at least used to when we could, for the restaurants, for the artsy things, for the good coffee, the good beer, whatever it might be. Uh, uh, but all, all these things that, that can be good can be used as idols, can be used as kind of things that we worship. Does that disturb us? Because it disturbs God. Now, we may not have buildings that say shrine on the outside, but we have all these kind of under-the-radar, kind of covert shrines for all these covert, under-the-radar kinds of gods. If you want to find an idol, like, oh, people aren't worshipping idols. If, if you want to find an idol, there are many. All you have to do is, is follow three things. You can follow where time goes, you can follow where money goes, you can follow where attention goes. Where we spend our time, our money, and our attention, those are the things that we worship. Those are the things that we organize our lives around. So where, where do we spend those things? Well, there are easy, easy ones we could talk about, like drinking too much. We could talk about going to pornography sites. We could talk about being greedy with money. We could talk about using our power for our own ends or, or our means for our own ends instead of for other people. And those are overt idols. They're very easy to point out. Ones that we know are bad, but we kind of do them anyway. All of us have that. We all have that. But there are other covert idols as well, kind of under, lurking under the radar. Ones that we kind of are involved in but tell ourselves that it's okay. Like we can spend all our time searching after a career, giving our lives to a career to give us comfort. We can spend all our money on stuff to distract us from how sad we are. We can spend all our attention to our family to fill us up. But none of these things are going to be big enough for our souls. None of them can be big enough. We're meant for so much more. And here, here's the other thing about idols. This is why they're not a good thing for us. You say, well, it's not really hurting anybody. It's, it's hurting us. Here's why it's not a good thing. Whatever we spend our time, our money, and attention on, those things will shape us. They form who we are. If we spend all our time, our money, and attention to getting ahead in life, the typical middle-class ideas of success that we kind of all have in the back of our heads, you'll be formed by those middle-class ideas. You will be a product of, the, of those middle-class ideas as much as you're chasing after those things. You become a middle-class product. If you spend all your free time trying to get likes on social media, you will be formed by the companies that are running those social media platforms. You are their product. If you spend all your attention on yourself, on what you think is right, on how to live, uh, your own traditions, how you use your money, all that kind of stuff, you'll be formed by that as well. 
Now, because we live in a culture that, that is very similar to Athens, we can't help but get caught up in worshiping other idols. It's like the water that we're swimming in. Now, one idol among many that all of us are kind of swimming in and all of us will have to struggle to swim against is consumerism. We are consumed by consumerism. And this is more than just buying stuff to make ourselves feel better, which is, is part of it for sure. But it's something bigger than that. The, this idea of consumerism. It is, consumerism sees the world as something for our good first. The world is out there for us to get advantage from. This is, this is true of how we treat our neighbors, how we treat our work colleagues, how we treat uh, schools, churches, small groups, whatever the thing is. Instead of seeking others' good above our own, we attempt to manipulate the world for us to gain the most. We all do that. We're all bent towards that. So if we're not working against that, we're probably swimming in it. Here's a small kind of real-world example. Your paycheck. If, if you get a paycheck, it's yours. You've earned it, right? Like, you put the time in, you get the money, you get to do with it whatever you want to do. You have complete control to do with it whatever you want to do first. And then maybe if you want to make yourself feel good, then that's when you might give some of it away. That is such a consumeristic view of what it means to be provided for by God. And that, that's kind of what we think all the time. We are surrounded by idol worship in our own hearts and in the hearts of those that we love and in the hearts of the neighborhood that God has called us to. It's just the reality. Now that's the reality. What it should do, that reality, should distress us, should disturb us, should, as it says in verse 16, greatly distress us that our neighborhood, that our city is full of idols. To seeing other people, other glorious people made in God's image, called to so much more, seeing them chasing after these false gods that are not going to give them the things that they really want to get, missing out on the real thing, does that provoke you? Does that change how you live? Or you just kind of feel sad about it maybe and then move on? Now, people join churches for all sorts of reasons. Believe me, all sorts of reasons. I've probably heard and seen them all. None of our motives are pure, are pure of course. But this, as a church, is what we're working towards. We're working towards seeing that reality and not being okay with it and working against it. Worshiping anything other than God should disrupt us. In our own lives, and we see other people doing that, in the lives of other people that we love. But first, it has to start with us. It has to start with us. Repenting and continuing in repentance. We'll talk about what repentance means in a little bit later on. But in that humbled state of knowing that we don't have everything together ourselves, what we do is we call others to join us as we kind of stumble towards faith together. And we talk with them, not at them. We reason with them, as what Paul does here. It's what he does. He talks with the people. He reasons with them. Remember, for Paul, Athens is not some kind of big planned mission. He didn't do like loads of behind the scenes kind of research. He, he didn't say, oh, this is, we're going to plant a church here in Athens. He's just there waiting and he's, he's being provoked and he's doing this. And yet God works. God is at work in these in-between times. When you think he's not, when you think, ah, maybe when I get myself ready, then God's going to work in something. God's working all the time. We need to just kind of have our eyes open to that. Paul wasn't content to just be disturbed and then act as if everything is back to normal, he took action. He said something. He did something. And what Paul uh, teaches them, he teaches us. 
the drastic difference between religion and Christianity. So we talked about how Paul was, was disur- disturbed, how there was a disruption. Now we're going to talk about how he talked about this kind of reality, the disturbing reality. And he puts it in stark terms, religion versus Christianity. Religion versus Christianity. But isn't Christianity a religion? Uh, how can they be different? You know, this isn't supposed to be some kind of like clever way to rebrand Christianity or something. Christianity is a world religion, as kind of world religions are defined. But it's really not like other religions. Not uh, obviously specifics like all the religions are different. Um, but even on a more broad sense, Christianity is quite different than all the other world religions. As we're going to look at verses 24 through 31 for this section. So just if you have your Bible or if you have our Acts book, have, have, have that open in front of you. So we're just going to go through those verses there, 24 through 31. And what we see there is religion is what we do for the gods. We do something for the gods. We serve them, or we craft them, or we give spaces for them, and we have to worship them. They require something of us. Religion is what we do for the gods. We serve the gods. We give gods life, especially if they're dead, like all other gods really are. We make spaces for these gods in our lives, in the public sphere. We craft these gods. Religion is actually a lot like celebrity culture. That religion is a lot like celebrity culture. Think of celebrities for a moment. We serve celebrities by giving them our attention. We give that to them. We give them our money. We give that to them. We give them our time. We give them life. We, without us doing those things, celebrities cease to be celebrities. If you don't pay attention to somebody for a long enough time, like they're not a celebrity anymore. They don't get the thing anymore. We make spaces for them in our homes, on our phones, through what we, what we read, through what we take photos of. We craft celebrities. We make them. We have created them. Without us, they cease. That's exactly like how religion is. Without us serving religion, religion ceases. Now, Christianity is something different here. It's what God has done for us. Like in verse 25, Paul says, He serves us first. This is what God does. He serves us. And in verse 25, He gives us life. We're not giving God life. He's the one who gives us life. In fact, he gave up his life, not for himself, but for us. He, he gave up his life for us. He made a space for us. He talks about how he created the world, he created history. He, he, not only a, a physical space, but a, a time, a timeline to exist, human history itself. Also, this God has crafted us. We, we didn't craft him, he's crafted us. Now, why is Paul talking about all this? Why has God done all this? So that we would not miss him. So we would not miss out on who he is and and what he has to give us. And Paul says in those verses 25 through 31, uh, in in verse 27, that God is not far from anyone. It could not be, possibly it's you that he's not far from. Maybe you think, oh, that God thing is really not for me. God is close to all people, is what Paul is saying here. Now, if the thing that we care about the most is something that we have created, or have had some hand in creating, or in or shaping in some way, we are shooting too low in our lives. If the thing we think about the most is something that we can change, or that we can alter, or that we can make, we're selling ourselves short. Those are idols. Those are other lowercase kind of gods. We are meant for more than what we can create. Something above us that's going to cause us something more than, than, uh, than who we are. If we've created it, 
whatever the thing might be, how can it really be better than us if our hands are kind of involved in it? can't really be that much better than us. Now, people say this, and I know it's a cliche, and I hate using cliches, but it really is true that Christianity isn't really as much of a religion as it is about a relationship. It is, it's true. Sadly, we often turn that relationship into a religion, but that's not the way it's meant to be. That's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what the rest of the Bible talks about here. You know, I've been watching this um, Netflix documentary on the 90s uh, Chicago Bulls. They're uh, an NBA team, so you have like Michael Jordan. You've probably heard his name. If you don't know anything about basketball, you've heard of Michael Jordan. There's Scottie Pippen, there's Steve Kerr, there's John Paxson. There's all sorts of Dennis Rodman. Who can forget about Dennis Rodman? All sorts of superstars. And I, I remember watching these Bulls. I was an, and still am a Knicks fan, so I would kind of hate the Bulls. I remember playing NBA Jam. If you ever played that arcade game before, it's like a two-on-two thing. Uh, it's amazing. Anyway, uh, I've gotten to the age now where documentaries are uh, made about my memories. <laughs> I'm okay with that, really. I, I am okay with that. Moving on. In this documentary, you learn a lot about Michael Jordan. You learn a lot about the 90s Bulls. Uh, I could learn a lot about Jordan. I could go on a Wikipedia page. I could read books. I could read transcripts of interviews. I, I could you know, watch old games and, and all sorts of other footage and stuff. I could make a religion out of it, but I would never really know Michael Jordan because he's not in my life. I'm not in his life. He's not in mine. It's the same thing with any other thing that we worship, with any other thing that we worship. Our careers aren't personal. Like, there's no relationship there. What we sacrifice on the altar of our careers is for a religion. What we sacrifice on the altar of success, that's for a religion. Religion is about what we do for a God so that that God will take care of me. Christianity is what God has already done for us so that he will take care of us. It's completely one-sided and completely dependent on God. When God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, this is thousands of years. This is like the first book of the Bible, so we're on the other side of the Bible here. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, and it was completely one-sided. God promised Abraham that he was going to be part, going to be the father, the spiritual father of a spiritual family bigger than he could count. And then God entered into a contract with Abraham. He took the animals and he cut them in two. And uh, normally this would be when the both parties who were involved in a contract would walk through these animals, basically saying, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may what these animals, what we've done to these animals may be done to me. May I be torn in two if I don't keep my end of the bargain. Those are strong terms. So think twice when you, when you sign those kind of contracts. But what happened in this story in Genesis 15 is though God made this promise to Abraham, entered into this contract with Abraham, Abraham did not walk in between those animals. Only God walked through. Abraham watched as God not only made the deal, but said, if you or I do not hold up my end of the bargain, may I be torn in two. If, we, if, I, if this deal doesn't work out because of me or because of you, may I be torn in two. That's completely one-sided. That's a completely one-sided relationship. Skip forward thousands of years from that when King David in, in Israel, in the Old Testament, told God he wanted to build him a house. He told God he wanted to build him a temple. God said, who are you to help me? I don't need your help. God is not a religion. God is a person. Our God is not served by human hands. Our God serves us. Just a side note, this is a 
kind of a random rabbit trail side mode. This is why I'm not a huge fan of calling our worship gatherings a church service. I think it's totally fine. You can say church service, whatever. I, I just, it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way because in our heads, I think we often think a church service is something that we do for God. Like, oh, I'm a Christian, so I do this to be a Christian. Or in order for God to like me, I have to do the thing, go, kind of go through these these rituals, these tasks. It's, it's about being good. Or it's about serving God. When really what we're doing is something very different. God serves us. We don't serve him, really. We can join him in his service, but we're not like serving him. And as God serves us, our lives will resound in worship. So as we gather together, we worship him. So if you're using the term church service to describe what we're doing on Sundays, like that's, that's totally fine. That is totally acceptable. Just know that when you say church service, that means at church, God is serving us. And not in a consumeristic kind of way, but in the way that a loving parent serves their children. That's kind of what, what that is all about. Back to the normal trail, off the rabbit trail. So there are many differences uh, between religion and Christianity. We don't have time to get into kind of all of them. That's just a few of the things. And there are many things to be religious about. Lord knows there are many things to be religious about. We can be I've met very non-religious people who are quite religious when it comes to food choices, when it comes to what they buy, when it comes to um, what energy they use to power their car. We could pick very small things, political parties, whatever, very small things and make religions out of it and be very religious about it. But all of this, what Paul is talking about, comes down, the difference between religion and Christianity, all of it comes down to one, one fact rooted in history. It all comes down to one. The main difference between religion and Christianity, the foundation of that difference, is the resurrection. The resurrection is the main difference. The resurrection is where God writes himself into our story, puts himself into our timeline, and changes everything. So the resurrection is controversial. People up, up until this point where Paul is reasoning with learned intellectuals in, in Athens, people are like, huh, that's very interesting. Won't you tell us more, Paul? And then he talks about the resurrection. They start sneering. They start rolling their eyes like, oh, this guy, what's he saying? In the face of supposedly learned people, the resurrection is offensive because it doesn't fit into kind of, it doesn't fit in the lines of what we think life is about. And it's interesting in that today, the historical reality of the resurrection is questioned. Though there's more than enough evidence, by the way, uh, for people who are actually seeking evidence, if you actually really want to find evidence of, of the resurrection, there are sources within and outside Christianity that kind of point to the historical rootedness of the fact. The first time, actually, that people questioned the historical reliability of the resurrection was hundreds of years after this. So at this time, it wasn't like people were questioning the historical reliability. It, was, uh, it wasn't for a lack of evidence. It was not believing that Jesus' resurrection mattered to them. It wasn't the fact that it wasn't real or not. It was, they, they saw it as irrelevant because they're living these kind of complacent lives. They're surrounded by all kinds of idols. One another God? Like, ah, do we need another God? No, we're all right. Thanks. So whatever side you're on with, um, with struggling to believe the resurrection, if it's not believing the historical evidence from inside or outside Christian sources, or whether or not Jesus was raised just kind of seems irrelevant. doesn't matter if it's true or not. doesn't matter in my life. This is what Paul says about the resurrection. Paul says it's proof from God. The resurrection is proof. And we all want God to prove himself, 
right? We all, God, if you're out there, please, won't you prove yourself? So let's see what he's on about. Like, what's the proof then, Paul? Well, verse 31 says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with with justice by the man he has appointed. God will set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Now, that appointed man is Jesus. And that means there is a time in the future when justice will come. Jesus' resurrection is about justice coming to a world that's in dire need of it. That could be really good news for us, especially now as we're feeling that need more than normal. We almost don't even need to talk about our need because we know it, but let's talk about that need, shall we? There are some police who are supposed to be enforcing justice, supposed to be on the side of justice, are part of a system that routinely perpetuates injustice. These are people in authority, people with guns, people who are marginalizing, people who are already marginalized. There are people who are poor and part of minority groups that are more likely to die from coronavirus. Why should how much money you have determine whether you're going to die or not? And yet it does. And this is nothing new. This is something that's always gone on. That we create laws to keep rich people rich and poor people poor. Again, this is nothing new. We've always done this in the West with, with, with laws that we have. Worldwide, 80% of people who are persecuted for their faith are Christians. Christians are, are, are being martyred for the faith even as we speak. There are homeless people not far away in Trollton, in our neighborhood. There's a serious homeless problem. Without food um, in our neighborhood. There are people who are living without food that they need in our neighborhood. Without any kind of daily social contact. Not talking to human beings for, for weeks at a time. This isn't far away. This is here in the southern part of, of our of our area, in Trollton Park, has the highest health deprivations in all of Manchester. It's right here on our doorstep. We all want justice. We all groan underneath injustice. Something about it just doesn't feel right. I remember growing up, uh, I loved Lego. I was obsessed with Lego. I'm really glad Colin's into it now because that means I have the excuse of playing playing with it now. But I remember there was a point where, I can't remember who it was, my parents or some other family members got me some kind of knockoff Lego and they wouldn't really connect. Uh, in a way, it was kind of like they kind of connect, but not really. It was just It just wasn't satisfying. And then you get the real Lego and it's just like, ah, oh, just clicks in, just feels good. But things that are supposed to go together and don't, things that are supposed to connect and don't, things that, that, that can be frustrating, that can be infuriating, especially if you're you know, a five-year-old boy, you want to chuck those things across the room. And I get it. That's just Lego. What about for people's lives? The resurrection is a future hope where one day all Lego will connect. Where one day all these problems that we have, all of those wrongs will be made right. Everything bro- that's broken will be restored. Everything crooked will be made straight. One day that will happen. Injustice is seeing something that is and knowing that things shouldn't be that way. Like those Lego parts that don't match. Something's off kilter. A future hope of worldwide justice that Paul's talking about here. Not just localized, worldwide global justice. That kind of future hope that as we work for justice now, we're working towards that. It doesn't alleviate us from involving ourselves in problems now. It enables us to give us the confidence we need that this is the trajectory of where Jesus is going. So as we work for justice in our world, we know we're joining him on his mission. 
towards a future where justice will reign everywhere. That gives a confidence to enter into working towards that today. The resurrection is God's proof that one day all will be made right. Wouldn't that be amazing? It's almost too good to be true. It's too impossible to be true. We just can't let ourselves even like believe that or think that. It's just too much. We're all looking for God, all in our own way. I mean, that's what we learned about the first point, right? We're surrounded by these idols. Every form of idol worship is, is us searching out for God. Idols are everywhere because of our search for God. God knew we were lost, so he came looking for us. He knew we couldn't find our way to him, work our way to him. He had to come to us. He wrote himself in our story, became like us, died for us, resurrected for us. And if that isn't proof enough, I don't know what is. Surely God couldn't give any more proof than that already happening. And in light of this proof from God, we're called to change. The Bible here says repent. Uh, repent, it could be a churchy word. What does it mean? It just means finding ourselves off of God's path, realizing that we're not on God's path where we ought to be. Being sorry for that and doing a 180 and changing and realigning ourselves with the way that God's called us to live. Everywhere that we are out of alignment with God, we will perpetuate injustice. We'll be bent towards it. We need to repent. We need to realign our lives with how God tells us to live. So what's the response here for, for in, in Athens here? Well, most reject Paul. They're sneering. They're intellectuals. They're complacent. But few actually accept the message. Now, when people say, we want to hear you again, which is kind of towards the end of that service, like, oh, that's very interesting, Paul. We want to hear you again on this tomorrow. That's code for let's talk about this and not actually do anything. Like, this is very interesting. It's a uh, it's complacency with wrapped up in kind of an intellectual clothes. So Paul is preaching his heart out here. And this message, it's, it's really good. Imagine if we were able to say these words kind of off the cuff. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Few preachers are going to have a message this good. Few people are going to have a message this good. Few people are going to have a platform like this. You and I may not ever, ever have a platform like this. But all of this, as great as it is, it doesn't end up in a church being planted. We don't read that here. It doesn't end up in droves of people coming to the faith. This teaches us that even if you preach like Paul, People will still choose complacency over change if left to their own devices. I think, instead of that being depressing, I think that should free us. Because that means you do not have to preach like Paul. You get to be alleviated from that burden, from that pressure, of feeling like you have to you know, be this wonderful answer man, answer woman, be able to say everything about everything. Even Paul preaching like Paul didn't, didn't change people. Because God is who changes people. That frees us Christians from needing to have all the right words all the time, or feeling like if we don't, then we're kind of failing and then we can't say anything. This gives us the freedom and the grace to be patient as well. Now, nearly everyone I talk to who doesn't talk to people about Jesus, and you know, not everybody is super stoked to always kind of be talking to people about Jesus, but often what I hear is that they're going to be afraid that they're just not going to have the right words to say. I get that. And you know what? You probably won't have the right words to say. That's okay. That's not required. Not by yourself anyway. You're not supposed to really have those words by yourself anyway. That's the wrong place to focus on. The more we focus on that, the less actually talking about Jesus that we'll do. Because that's a self-orientation. 
because I don't have the words, I can't speak. The more we focus on the Holy Spirit, on His work in our lives, His work in our world, that means we're free to be patient. We are free to not have to have the perfect presentation. And there isn't one, by the way. And we get to be free to just talk about Jesus like it's normal, because it is, and it should be. And some are not going to accept it. Some will reject you. Some will even sneer. But some might accept you. Now, let's just end on this. We talked about uh, the future hope of justice earlier. That sounds perfect, right? It sounds like, like a little piece of heaven or heaven itself. But there's a problem. Because the injustices of this world make God angry. You think they disturb you? You think they make you angry? They disturb God even more. And he will not sit by forever. But if we take a moment, and instead of pointing outward at injustice, we point inward just for a moment. We see not only where the world falls short, but where we fall short. We already talked about how we worship other gods all the time. I already got you to believe that we're all in the same boat with that. As much as injustice out there disturbs us, and, and it should, and let that continue to disturb us and disrupt us, the injustices in here should as well. And that's something that we are responsible for. We have control over. I have no control over the police in America. I do have control over my heart. The justice God brings is not just against others. It's against everyone. It says here that Jesus will judge the world with, not, with justice. It doesn't say that Jesus will judge everybody except for you. He's going to judge you with that same kind of pressure, the same kind of intensity. The same justice we wish against others will be leveraged against us. This is scary. This is frightening. This is awful. But Paul was calling this good news. That's what he says in verse 18. He said it was the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. How can something so scary and awful also be called good news? How can God really take care of justice, including us, and that be a good thing for those of us who are unjust, which is all of us? The only way this can be good news, the only way this can be good news for us, is through the resurrection. That's the only way. The only way this can be hope for us in the injustice out there, the injustice in here, the only way that can be hope for us is because of the resurrection. God writes himself into our story. He knows how unjust we are, more than we do, by the way. So he took on our injustice. He also knows we can't repent. We can't change ourselves without him. And so he took that change, that need to change, that, that horrible, dark desires to do everything against him. He took that upon himself as well. He took on our, on our injustice. He took on our idol worship, all the religions we search after, all that are of our heart that is bent away from God's path. He took that upon himself. He took that on, and that's why he died, to put out our injustices, to put them to death. Jesus died so that we would die, those parts of us that need to die. Our idol worship is put to death. Our love of religions is put to death. Our lack of caring about what we really need to care about is put to death. And then Jesus rose again. Through the resurrection, the unknown God becomes known as the giver of life, the giver of breath, the giver of meaning, the giver of something more. He's written himself into our story. And through being connected to him, his resurrection becomes ours. His resurrection becomes ours. 
That's mind-boggling. We get his new life, a heart that can actually be aligned with God. Of course, we go off course. We're, we're not perfect, right? We go off course from time to time. But now he gives us the desire to be realigned with him. We didn't have that before. Not before he changed us. A heart changed by the Holy Spirit allows us to change, allows us to repent. A heart that, because it loves God, loves justice. So that is the only way that a future hope of justice can be good news for the world and for us. And Jesus has done it. He has secured it. So when we're down on ourselves, when we do the things that nobody else sees or knows about, and we try and cover that up and shamefully hide, Christian, know this. The resurrected Lord sees you, knows you, more than you know yourself. He doesn't leave you, and he calls you to more, gently. When we chase after those idols, when we're just happy to be religious, not really caring about a relationship with God, um, or, or his people. Christian, know this. The resurrected Lord sees you. He knows you. He's not running away. He's there with you. He doesn't leave you, and he calls you to more. Gently, patiently. When you're lonely, when you're forgotten, when the world seems to not care about you, when the world seems to not need you, when the world seems it couldn't even care less if you're around, the resurrected Jesus is there with you. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in us, lives in us, dwells in us, has taken up residence, he's made his home here. How amazing is that? So let's leave the idols behind. Let's embrace the relationship that we get to have with our creator and with Jesus himself and lean more into that resurrection life that Jesus has given us. Let me pray.